Sometimes it seems like we're just not making progress. We feel stuck. We're reading all the books. We may be doing all the therapy. We're going to support groups. We're going on retreats. We're trying, we are, but we're still stuck in the same patterns of thought, the same patterns of behavior. How do we get unstuck? Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. So before I jump into this week's podcast, I want to tell you a little story. My friends and I had a really hearty laugh this last week, and I had gone to a friend's house for dinner and to enjoy her sweet, sweet family. I love her kids. And I shared with them um, what some of you saw on my Instagram story this week. Apparently, there is a hair salon somewhere out there who plays my podcasts while the ladies are getting their hair done, and they call it therapy. <laughs> which is just awesome. So ladies, this is for you. I so wish I could be sitting in a chair right alongside you with my balayage saran wrap in my hair and you doing your thing, shooting the breeze, laughing at this crazy journey we are all on. But for now, just please know that I'm thinking about you. I respect you for doing your work. And I love therapy, this word. It's so funny. It's clever. I just love that more than I can say. When I shared this with my friends, we all had a really good laugh. So thank you for being clever and wonderful. And ladies, I hope the podcast helps. A um, big hug to you all. Okay, so an interesting phenomenon happens in therapy, and I've witnessed it so many times. And it happens consistently as people are doing deeper work, but it happens in different ways. Okay, but this week I want to dive into an element of healing and transformation that we understandably shy away from. And why do we do that? Because it's really hard. And I'm going to get into the hard today. All right. So first, I'm going to set this up a little bit. There's a process to healing. Okay, and whether or not we realize it when it's happening, there is actually a process going on inside of us from an emotional mental perspective when we're healing. And it's what got me into psychotherapy. It's what got my interest roused in psychology. I was fascinated by human dynamics. I wasn't one of these people who came into the field, you know, I just want to help people. Helping people was a byproduct of my fascination with human dynamics and sort of the mechanisms of intrapsychic, which means within the person, and interpersonal, which means person to person, intrapsychic and interpersonal dynamics. I'm just fascinated by all of those inner workings. So... This is the fun of being a therapist, is you get to see this and really tease it apart. Now, here's the thing. I can't claim to have definitive knowledge on all of these dynamics because no one does, okay? Psychology is a quote-unquote science, <laughs> but it's really not a science. And the reason why it's not very scientific is because the whole field of psychology is based on the subjective observation of subjective experiences. There's nothing objective about psychology. It's all subjective. So there really are no hard and fast rules like there are in chemistry or physics or biology. That does not exist in psychology because human beings do different things in different environments. So it's what we call a soft science for that reason, even though I think psychiatry has just really gone way too far with what is a very soft science. But over the years, okay, my theories that I've observed in people have actually become belief systems and practices in psychotherapy because I've witnessed the same dynamics so many times. So let's talk through some of that, okay? Essentially, human beings heal from the inside out. And that means that no outward experience 
meaning no class, seminar, or self-help book. There's no session with a guru. There's no retreat. There's no degree. There's no accomplishment. None of that. No label. Nothing that generates, meaning it comes into being, outside of us can heal us. Healing happens from within. So what we're interested in when we're interested in healing and transforming ourselves is an inside process. You know, you've heard this phrase, happiness is an inside job, contentment is an inside job. It really is because outward things just don't have the power to do that. Human beings only transform from within. Let's look at an example, okay? We have an experience with someone. Maybe we're in relationship with someone and we feel truly seen and heard. And that is a great gift. Maybe we fall in love, okay? Sometimes that feeling happens when we're in love. And we have this interaction with someone and maybe the person that we're interacting with, whether we're in love with them, it's a friendship, a healer, whatever it is, they're a healing person, meaning they're doing their own work and healing people heal others. And we feel like we're alive again because that's what being seen and heard and known does for us emotionally. It brings us to life. And we think that person healed us. They did not. They did not. The part of us that needed to be seen, heard, known, acknowledged, whatever it is. Really, I like the word held. I think internally, we all want to be held with love and gentleness and compassion. That part of us has been touched. And that part, which is worthy of love, by the way, and worthy of being held with gentleness and compassion, that part of us received nourishment. And so like a plant that's wilting or withering, that gets fresh water and sunlight, the plant sprouts back to life, right? It sort of rejuvenates. We come back to life. But the healing is happening within. There are structures. There are sort of, I don't want to be overly dry about it, but there are sort of internal mechanics that take place that allow us the nourishment we need to come back to life. This is how we grow. And we can't control when others see us or to what extent they can see us or hear us or know us. We can communicate well. We can learn how to give our relationships the best shot they have. And that is by learning how to communicate clearly, gently, precisely, and consistently. Okay, that's in our control. But we really can't control how others respond to us. That's sort of out there. It's out of our control. It's sort of a step of faith. It's trust. Okay? But what we can control is not only how we communicate, but how we see ourselves. And this is why I really focus on the relationship with the self in my psychotherapy with my own clients. Because people, unfortunately, will let us down. We have let people down. I have let people down. People don't always show up when we need them. I have not shown up when people needed me. Hate to say it, but it's true. Sometimes people love us like crazy, but they don't know how to give us what we need. It's just the way of relationship. Disappointment is inevitable. But we can control, again, how we communicate and how we treat ourselves. So the second part of that, okay, and if you know me and you listen to this podcast, you should not be surprised at all that I am going to zero in on your relationship with yourself because that's what I do. That's what we're going to focus on today. I want to break down a little piece of an essential part of the process of healing and transformation, and it has to do with how we address our coping mechanisms, okay? Now, 
you all know that I wrote a book called The Toolbox. It's for sale. You can go to Amazon and buy it. If you want to support small businesses, go to bookbaby.com. Click on the store. There's a little tab at the top that says bookstore. Click on that. Look for my name. You can buy the book. Okay. At the workshop, and this is when I teach the book and I work with couples in real time. And by the way, I'm going to make an announcement about that later on in the episode. So tune into that. But at the workshop, I ask participants to circle their preferred coping mechanisms from a list. So up on the screen and in their packet, they see lists of coping mechanisms, just behaviors. And I'm going to use this interchangeably with survival traits, okay? They're the behaviors we get into to survive. And the list is broken up into a couple of main categories, moving away, moving against, and moving toward. And this comes straight out of the work of a theorist named Karen Ornay. She spearheaded what's called the interpersonal theory of attachment, okay? And in Ornay's theory, we are in dysfunction. This is not in healthy relationships. In dysfunction, we're moving in one of three directions in our relationships, and she calls these movements neurotic trends. (laughs) Not a nice name, Karen. And she's a Karen. I'm just kidding. Anyway, so the neurotic trends, the three directions we're moving in are away, toward, or against. So what are we talking about in terms of real human behavior? Okay, let's break this down. If we are moving towards someone, remember that this is in dysfunction. We want to move toward people in safety. But when we're moving towards someone in unsafety, and you're thinking to yourself, Vanessa, why in the world would we move towards someone when we're not safe in the relationship? Okay, listen up. When we're moving towards someone in a lack of safety, we are complying, people-pleasing, fawning, imitating, flattering. These are all movements we make when we're trying to get closer to someone else. We're trying to win favor. We're trying to win approval. And it gives us a false sense of closeness. Okay? And you can hear in all of those behaviors, you can hear the dysfunction. This is not moving towards someone in trust and safety. This is moving towards someone actually out of fear. Well, that sounds so dysfunctional. It is. Okay, (laughs) it is. All right. These behaviors usually involve self-abandonment. We abandon our own needs, our own feelings, our own boundaries, our own beliefs in order to feel close to another person. So what's happening in effect, and this is sort of the dynamic of it, is we're making ourselves smaller to make the other person larger, and we think that if we appeal to their ego, it'll win them over. Now, and this is a little tiny tangent, but it's very important, if the person is narcissistic at all, this will work, okay? You will actually gain favor by making yourself smaller if the person is narcissistic. It's actually a good litmus test for a narcissistic personality. If I play small, do I experience more approval and attention from this person? If so, you're probably working within a narcissistic personality structure. Okay, that's a little sidebar, but it's important. When playing small wins you favor, be careful. Now, moving away, that was moving toward. Moving away, these are actions of detachment, okay? Things like shutting down, denial, stonewalling, which is essentially a habit that we get into where we just won't talk. We won't participate. You can talk to someone and they stare at you with a blank face. That's stonewalling, okay? I call, I reach out in a normal, you know, rational way and you don't call back. You don't reach out back, okay? That's stonewalling. Hiding, 
lying, misrepresenting yourself, conflict avoiding, intimacy avoiding, leaving, abandoning, okay? All of these dimensions of behavior are meant to remove the true self from the grasp of others. That's why they're called moving away, okay? Moving against, these are actions of aggression, screaming, name-calling, threatening, hitting, blaming, exploding, controlling, shaming, all right? All of these actions are intent on making another person smaller than us. Now, some of you are cringing right now. Ooh, I do that. Okay, sit tight. We're going to talk all the way through this. All right, if you are starting to recognize yourself in any of these three sets of coping mechanisms, moving toward, moving away, or moving against, first of all, I wanna welcome you as an ambassador. I wanna welcome you officially to the human race. You are part of us, you belong here, all right? It is perfectly human to employ these behaviors, number one. And number two, what you do with them will determine the path of your life. Well, Vanessa, that's a pretty big statement. Yep, and I will stand behind it every single day and twice on Sunday because it's true. When we are moving against, okay, again, this is aggression. These are aggressive behaviors. We gain power and control by being larger than another, kind of the opposite of moving toward. We want to be smaller and gain approval. When we're moving against, we want to be larger and gain power. And very often, these types of coping mechanisms result in being abusive, okay? Now, very often, when people seek therapy, they're experiencing the pain of having these coping mechanisms, any combination of them, used against them. And rightfully so. These are painful. These behaviors cause harm to other human beings. When we participate in them, we have caused harm. We get caught, okay? And this is, I want to make sure I make this point very, very clearly. Again, as an ambassador of the human race, totally self-appointed, I want to welcome you to it. This is very normal human behavior. But if we have any hope of growth or transformation or, you know, quote unquote, make the world a better place, we got to get a handle on these behaviors because they're in us. And when we see these in ourselves, more likely than not, we were caught in the throes of other people's coping mechanisms and survival behaviors. And that brought us into our own survivor self because at the hand of their coping mechanisms, we had to survive. And I'll tell you, it's a very strong marker of growth when other people launch into survival behaviors and you hold your ground steady. You don't react, you don't imitate, you don't use that as a justification for your own survival behaviors. You stay in a loving, respectful stance while someone else survives all over you. It's hard to do, but typically, until we've done a bit of work with those survival behaviors in ourselves, and again, I'm using those terms interchangeably, survival behaviors and coping mechanisms, one person's survival breeds another person's survival. So one person gets emotionally dysregulated and we throw another person into emotional dysregulation. And by the way, this is why we have to take responsibility for our actions. Our energy has a ripple effect. 
You know, one person reacts and then the other person reacts to their reactivity. One person attacks and then the other person either fawns, avoids, or attacks back. It's so hard to hold steady while another person is in their survival self. And typically we can't really do that unless or until we've done a bit of work. But this is often why people come to therapy, because they're in reactive relationships. And it's absolutely why couples seek couples counseling, because they're surviving all over one another. One person throws out their survival, the other person throws it back. My coping mechanisms cause his coping mechanism, causes her coping mechanism. We're all over the map, okay? And this is also why we spend so much time in therapy dissecting relationships, because we're trying to figure, okay, what, what is triggering this? When you get into this behavioral pattern, what's going on for you? Is this something you can work with? Is this something you need to set a boundary with, right? Therapists often hear of behaviors in their clients' worlds, and the client has normalized it. So the client is receiving really dysfunctional behavior. Oh, so-and-so said this to me, said that to me. You know, I'll never forget the first time I was in therapy. I will never forget this day. I was probably 23 or 24. And I remember describing the way I was punished. I was whipped. And my therapist just very flatly, calmly, but very directly looked at me and said, Vanessa, that's child abuse. That's, that's physical abuse. No, 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 no. I was in denial. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's just cultural. It's just the way, you know, I defended my parent. But I never forgot that moment because I remember it, it sort of hit me like, wait a second. Are we talking about whipping children? Is that not abuse? Now, there's a whole process there to going from owning your feelings about that and then forgiving. I mean, that's a whole process, okay? But what I'm talking about is that in therapy, very often the client is desensitized. They don't even know what they're going through. So they're, you know, in all their own coping mechanisms. I was a people pleaser to the nth degree. Um, I still struggle with that sometimes. I can still abandon myself in order to win approval. But I'm people pleasing. I'm lying. I'm terrified of intimacy. I'm all these things in my 20s, which took a while to work out, to be honest. And here I have somebody for the first time telling me, well, you, that was physical abuse. You know, if you live in fear of authority figures, there's a reason why. Oh, okay. And we talked about that some last week about authority styles, right? But that's sort of the first part of therapy is we got to kind of hear what's going on. That's part of what we're doing when we're taking a history. Like what happened to you? What behaviors did you experience both nourishing and destructive that helped you form who you are, helped shape who you are. And so sometimes the therapist has to say, and they are there to say, this is dysfunctional. You know, if you reacted to this by becoming depressed or anxious, or you developed this coping mechanism, you know, that that is a normal reaction to this dysfunction. So the therapist is kind of the person who's calling out Let's just say the therapist is the person who's calling a spade a spade. All right. We're calling bovine excrement on a lot of things sometimes because we have to. Right. We have to get a sense of like what it takes to nourish someone, what conditions are required for children and adults to thrive in. And then we've got to call out, OK, that wasn't nourishing. We don't have to attack and hate our parents, but we also just have to call a spade a spade if we're ever going to heal. Now, when therapy becomes really difficult 
meaning for the client and the therapist. And the reason why it becomes difficult in the relationship is because it can possibly become confrontational, is when, and this is actually when therapy has the most powerful possibility of helping another person transform, it's when we're holding up a mirror to the client's own coping mechanisms. Because typically people can talk about how they have been harmed all day long. They want to spend about 0.3 seconds talking about how they have harmed others. Now, in a therapeutic relationship, this can't be done too soon because the relationship isn't strong enough yet. You know, in circles of therapists, we talk a lot about, quote unquote, earning the right to confront a client, earning the right to say something in therapy. And I have made this mistake. All therapists make mistakes. But, you know, sometimes we say it too soon or we don't say it. We wait too long. You know, Therapy is a dance of timing, if nothing else. But that's part of what should be built into the therapeutic relationship is holding up that mirror with compassion and humanity and saying, okay, that happened. How are you coping with it? And it is an invitation to the client to bravely, hopefully compassionately face themselves. And tragically, my friends, most therapists will not or cannot do this. They are too afraid of losing a client. I've seen it. I've heard it. They don't want to lose a client. It's their income. I hate to say it, but it is true. Now, me, I can't sleep at night if I'm not doing my job. I would rather, I've said this a million times, I would rather live in a box under a bridge with integrity than live any other way. Sometimes therapists, it's not about money. It's not about keeping the client. They're too unaware of their own coping mechanisms. They haven't got that deep into it. They may be living out of their own victimized mentality. What does that mean? And again, I know I'm being a little harsh on my profession, but I've been in this long enough to comment on it, okay? The therapist very often can be living in a victim mentality themselves where, well, I'm just trying to survive against, you know, the hand of the people who oppress me or hurt me. It's like, okay, That will only take you so far in your healing. That is the first step of healing is identify what the heck went wrong. Yes, identify your wounds. Yes. You know, I tell my clients, you were victimized. My gosh, you were seven years old. You were 17 years old. If you're a child and you were overpowered in any kind of a harmful way by an adult, you were victimized. But how long we live in that mindset is a choice. And I'm going to get to that next week, actually, the choices we have. But this week, okay, so many therapists will stop there at sort of validating what happened and empathizing with the harm and offering a safe place for the emotions to be expressed. That is so important. It is an essential stage of psychotherapy. It is not the entire job. And sometimes therapists do more harm than good because they justify poor behavior. Well, you know, it's no wonder you do this. Look what happened to you. Now, look, there is a really good time to just be on the dang side of your client and whatever they do, you've got their back. And I understand that. That is part of the job. And I am wholeheartedly this way quite frequently when I work with women who have been in abusive relationships with men. And I know that's very, well, Vanessa, are you being stereotypical? No, I'm not. Not all men are abusive. And not all women are victims of that. But when I'm just giving you an example, for an example, when that is the situation, my goal for that woman is to get to safety. I don't really care what you do, how you fight back, 
We'll deal with your aggression on another day. That is not what is needed right now. What is needed is for you to get to safety. And once they're in safety, probably in safety for years, then we might work on their own dysfunctional reactions and coping mechanisms. But too often, women in that situation are going to be quick to blame themselves. So I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, nope. Whatever you're doing right now to keep yourself safe, you keep yourself safe until we can get you out of this. Okay, so I'm using that as an example. There are times, and it doesn't have to be as severe as domestic violence. There are times when I've just got my clients back, period. What you're doing to survive is what you're doing to survive. You know, I've had clients like, well, I'm still medicating with cigarettes. And in my head, I'm like, you are not ready to stop smoking. Am I a doctor? I can't give that advice. But I think in my head, that is helping you right now. Oh, Vanessa, that's not holistically healthy. No, it's not. But these are not black and white issues. That's not the fish we're frying. That's not on the front burner. Maybe we'll get to that. Right now, we need to help you be functional every single day. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a time to not address these things. And there is a time to address them in the therapeutic relationship or just in your life. We all have to get to a point where we can say, how am I coping? How am I reacting? But people want to feel better and they come to therapy and they want to feel better. And diving into your own coping mechanisms is hard. So they don't want to do it. And I get that. I actually have wanted that, too. What they want is for the symptoms they're experiencing within themselves, right? The pain, the emptiness, the loneliness, the sorrow, the anxiety. They want the symptoms to abate. So therapy becomes about an outcome and not a process, But that will not work because therapy is about the process. And here's the deal. We can't want the outward manifestations of inward malfunctions to disappear without dealing with the inward malfunctions. Okay, is that confusing? Did that make sense? Let me say it another way, okay? If you want your symptoms to abate, do the inner work. Be committed to the process. You know, some of us don't know how to do some very essential things that are critical components of mental health. And we're going to therapists who are not helping us. We want to feel better, but we don't want to address that we have a real lack when it comes to certain essential internal processes, things like critical thinking, just plain old critical thinking, which thank God for Aaron Beck and the cognitive behavioral therapy movement. That's what he was getting people to do. He's looking at a field. It's like, oh, my gosh, everybody's in emotional reasoning. Hang on. We got to come back to critical thinking here. Rational thought. And therapy gets this wrong so often by focusing on the primacy of emotions without regard for the realities of life or the emotional experience of other people. It's like we're churning out little narcissists. Oh, well, if you feel it, it must be true. And your feelings matter. And your feelings matter than other people's. Guess what? No, they don't. No, they do not. Everyone in life has their own perspective, their own story, their own reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. And if we want to be in what's called relationship with any other human being, we need to get this straight. But therapists are colluding with clients in emotional reasoning. Well, if you feel it, it must be true. Uh, no, no, no. No, if you feel it, it's important. It's important to pay attention to it. 
Because your emotions are going to give you very important signals as to how you're reacting to your perception of the world around you and, much more frequently, the world you've created in your mind. But both of those two things are subjective realities. Your perception of the world around you and the world you've created in your own mind have to stand up to critical thinking. It has to stand up to rational thought. Just because you feel it doesn't make it true. But here's the other truth. Just because you think it, it doesn't make it true. If your thoughts are not following the canons of logic, which exist to ground us in reality and keep us sane, they should be challenged. I'm not saying it's not true, and I'm certainly not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it's not reality. So often we live in the confines of our own mind. I mean, I work with people every single day who believe and think they are worthless. Am I just supposed to say, well, if you believe it, it must be true? No, no. But I have to help my clients learn to think critically about themselves. You know, emotional expression is another one of these. Folks, whatever we don't consciously feel, consciously, meaning like it's in your awareness in real time, we act out. This is where terrible behavior comes from. So we need an emotional vocabulary to communicate what is internally happening. Otherwise, we're simply using behavior to communicate, which is, please pardon me for the truth, how children communicate. This is how toddlers communicate. They don't have vocabulary. They don't have emotional words, so they act out their feelings. But we do this as adults without the ability to express ourselves emotionally. Now, look, if you're feeling pleasant emotion, you know, love, hope, peace, generosity, gratitude, if you're feeling all the good stuff and you communicate those pleasant emotions with behaviors, you will be a joy to the others around you, won't you? You will just simply be a pleasant, joyful person to be around. But what happens when you feel the unpleasant stuff? What happens when we feel fear or anger or shame? And instead of talking about it, we act it out. We are looking straight down the barrel of dysfunctional behaviors. Folks, the following statement is true. Dysfunctional behaviors are driven by emotions that are not communicated in a healthy way. So I'm talking about two processes that we need to have to have stable relationships and be stable in our own lives. Critical thinking, emotional expression. There are more. These things ground us in mental and emotional health. But when we're solely focused on what others have done to us and not focused enough on our own behavior, our own reactions, which I would say, again, in the course of therapy, needs to come eventually, we will never grow. Eventually, we've got to hold up a mirror. Now, there's a process to it, right? We need to participate in a process of self-discovery where we tell our stories. We're coming out of denial. We're feeling the feelings we had about our stories. We're starting to tell the stories we haven't told anyone. We're starting to remember things again. We're having our feelings about those memories. Then we start getting into how we react. And we've got to have some self-compassion to look at ourselves honestly. You have to have self-compassion to look at yourself honestly. Then we start identifying more the coping mechanisms, the fallout. This is the path. So many people never get past this happened to me and I was a victim. So what is the phenomenon I'm talking about? 
What's the domino effect? All right, I mentioned this phenomenon in the beginning of the podcast. The phenomenon is this. When we face ourselves, again, I'm using this image of a mirror, right? When we can stare down, and this is really hard to do, our own coping mechanisms and deal with that layer of self-awareness, what does that look like? For someone who's in denial, okay, for example, and this is these are all different stages of growth. It's just at every stage the phenomenon takes place. So for someone who's in denial, okay, this is usually the early stages of therapeutic work, or it could be later, but it takes a while to come out of denial. Um, you know, I come from a lot of the 12-step world, and their thinking has influenced the way I think and certainly how I grew as a human being. But they talk about you know, go to six meetings. And after six meetings, that's six hours of your life. And then the time it takes to get there, drive there, whatever. After six meetings, I remember hearing this for the first time, it was so humbling. You will begin to come out of denial. And having been a part of this fellowship for, I don't know now, 10 years, I'd say that's right. (laughs) Uh, Longer, 11 years, 12 years, whatever it is, doesn't matter. I would say that's true. And the longer I have been part of that community, the more I've come out of denial. Now, this is not, I'm not trying to sell ACA on people. I'm just saying that was my experience. But I would say the principle is being around people who are telling the truth, which hopefully would be a therapist in a one-on-one setting or hopefully a friend group, but I know all of our friends don't operate that way. But being around people who are dealing consciously and truthfully and bravely about their own stories, their own lives, it does bring us out of denial. It really does. It gives us sort of a runway. So if you're in denial, the phenomenon happens when you start admitting not only your story, but the pain of your story. You're not just beginning to talk about your emotions. You're beginning to allow yourself to feel them again. Let's say someone has chronically blamed someone else for their pain. Okay, they're rooted in the victim mentality. This is where they live. This is where they're comfortable. Everybody else doesn't get me. I am such a martyr. I have pure motives. You know, we've all been these people. We all know these people. But you know, it's like when, when we don't want to see how we're participating in the cycle, okay? In the moment when that person says, with honesty, with honesty, not out of ego, not because I heard it on a pop- podcast and I want to think I'm healthy, so I'm going to mimic what I heard. I mean, when it comes from inside you, that's what I mean by generative. It has to come from inside you when you can say in your guts, I am contributing to this cycle and I am responsible for the part that I create. Transformation happens. You know, we're sort of living in an age where there's so much mental health. My gosh, like the number of, I'm like, I'm part of the problem. You know, I'm like another therapist on Instagram, another podcast on mental health. I mean, hopefully I think that this one hits a little different, but we're living at a time where you're getting so much information, you know, three ways to do this. Don't ever expect a survivor to do this. I mean, again, these are good messages, but we're so inundated with it that sometimes we're repeating what we're hearing, but it's not coming from us. It's not real self-revelation. We're repeating it probably because we want to be healthy. We want to do it right, right? We don't want to ruin our own lives, screw up our own lives. But there's also an ego part of it. We don't want to see what we're really doing. I want to hear myself say the healthy thing. I want to observe myself do the healthy thing. Friends, that's, that is not it. That is not it. 
The phenomenon happens when you become aware of how you are contributing to pain. Not just your own, the pain of others. Along those lines, maybe somebody's avoiding conflict. Maybe you're listening to this and you thought, okay, my defense mechanisms, my coping mechanisms, I move away. I avoid conflict. It's the moment you acknowledge the pain you've caused yourself and others by refusing to address reality. Your denial has kept everyone out of reality. It's the moment you identify your coping mechanisms and start talking about them. Not because you heard a podcast, although I hope this podcast is a catalyst. Not because you read it in a book, but because you can feel your pain and you're starting to develop some damn empathy and you can sense and feel other people's pain and you think to yourself, I've got to address this. That's the phenomenon. And in a therapeutic setting, it happens when safety has been established, but it will not typically take shape without some kind of challenge. It means we start talking about when we've done this thing, whatever the coping mechanism is. We talk about the person who's been affected by it. We start feeling the weight of our wrongs. And I will tell you, this can and might feel crushing, but it will not kill you. It will free you. Friends, look, therapy is not about getting an honorary master's or doctorate in understanding human behavior. I have so many examples. I've done this. We've all done it. It's a way of avoiding ourselves. We go to the therapist. We ask them 100 questions about other people in our lives. And I've only recently, probably in the last few years, become a therapist who can see that coping mechanism, which is called intellectualization. You know, if I understand everything, it won't hurt me. No, you've got to deal with yourself. And I might look at a client and say, you know, these are really good questions about other people. And I think I have some insight. But the truth is, I don't know them. But you're sitting here now. Let's talk about you. But I've done that. I've gone to therapy and wanted to completely dissect other people and figure out their motives and why they did such and such to me. And I don't think it was a waste of time and that it was part of my process. But friends, it was kind of a waste of time. Like, it wasn't really where the work is. The phenomenon happens when you go, it is about me. It is about how I am coping. I don't even know if I'm living in reality. You know, I'm going to tell you a story. I was in therapy. I started therapy. You know my story. I started therapy in like my early 20s. And it was just, it was an essential time for me to get into therapy. The first phone call I ever made to a therapist, I said, someone, please call me back. I'm afraid I'm going to hurt myself. And I was right on the edge. And she did, like within an hour or two. And I got in to see her, I think, that day. And that began my therapeutic experience. And I've had really, really good therapists. And I've had really well-meaning therapists who were not as skilled, okay? However, there was a point in my therapy, and I'm still with this therapist. I've been his client, I don't know now, maybe 10 years. And I walked into therapy, and I just sat down, and I looked at him, and I said, everything about me is a lie. And he just didn't, he didn't blink. Some of you know the story. I think I've told it on the podcast. He said, okay. And looking back as a therapist, I know that that reaction comes from someone who's done their work. Because if you haven't done your work, you're going to go, no, I'm sure that's not true. And that feels really good and soft and squishy, but it's actually not what I needed. I needed someone who had faced their own duplicity to look at me and say, okay. And I said, I'm 
totally fake. I don't think anything about me is real. I'm like a Hollywood set. Like I'm painted on the outside to look good, but there's nothing holding me up by two by fours. And he said, okay. And he said, Vanessa, does anything feel real? And I started crying. I got really choked up and I said, the pain. And he said, then that's where you start. What a moment with a man who has done his work and faced himself. Friends, therapy is not about earning a doctorate in human behavior. It's about earning a doctorate on yourself. I'm going to list these coping mechanisms again, all right? And I want you to listen. And I want you to just give yourself a chance today to be honest about which ones sound like you. (laughs) For me, it's like all of them. But maybe you're you're not quite as dysfunctional as I am. All right, here we go. Moving toward compliance, people-pleasing, Fawning, imitation, flattery, and there could be more. Moving away, shutting down, denial, stonewalling, hiding, lying, misrepresenting, conflict avoiding, intimacy avoiding, leaving. Moving against, aggression, screaming, name calling, threatening, hitting, blaming, exploding, controlling, shaming. That part's hard. Because if you're listening to this, you know, people are like, oh, we listen to this in a hair salon. I'm like, oh, gosh, ladies, man, this is a very deep hair salon. Um, hang in there. Do the work. Do it with each other. There's no reason you can't do it with, you know, with, uh, with foils in your hair. You can still do the work with foils in your hair. I want you to just jot it down because this is your therapy. This is your work. This is what we do. This is how we have taken these coping mechanisms that were either passed down to us through modeling or maybe sometimes even explicit instruction, which was both in my case. We've absorbed these coping mechanisms. We've made them our own. We identify with them. They're part of our personality. And the danger we have is if we justify them because of what was done to us. Again, the phenomenon happens when you realize it's your cycle to deal with. It's your part of the cycle. Now, here comes the really, really hard part. It's hard. Vanessa, that was already hard. Yes, it's hard to identify and own your own coping mechanisms. And now here's the really hard part. Identify the motive. Friends, this is where your shadow lives. This is the side of us we do not want to see. And this is where most therapy falters or comes to a halt. And it is likely because the therapist hasn't gone this deep themselves. And you cannot give what you do not have. And you will not lead someone to a shadow land that you have not faced yourself. Why do we avoid this so much? Because motives most often, more often than not, are about power. And this is the ugly side of us we don't want to see. Maybe we need to start admitting, I have been avoiding conflict with you because I have never wanted to admit my own wrongs. And by staying detached and by avoiding the conflict, I was able to maintain my own image of myself in my own eyes. I said what I said to shame you. Oof. Again, on behalf of the human race, I'd like to welcome you to the human race if you've ever done this, especially if you were raised in a shaming environment. If you were raised in a shaming environment, please do not for one second beat yourself up for shaming other people. You were taught that. And number two, 
Do not think for one second that if you were raised in a shaming environment, you don't have the capacity to do this for other people. The apples don't fall that far from the tree. They just don't. This is human behavior. But if we admit not just what we did, but why, I shamed you. And the reason why I said what I said is I wanted you to feel less than me. So I chose words that would hurt you and have power over you in that moment. And I'm sorry. Now we're healing. By the way, if you've ever done the 12 steps, this is your fourth and your fifth step and your eighth and your ninth step. And it is hard, hard. Fourth step is a moral inventory, thorough, very hard to do. You got to face yourself. Fifth step, you have to tell someone. You have to admit these wrongs. Eighth step, you make a list of all the persons you've harmed. Ninth step, you make amends directly. Woo! I will tell you, this is why the 12 steps are so effective. They will transform you. You have to deal with yourself. Folks, this is where the rubber meets the road in transformation. First, we have to learn kind of what we do, right? What contextual environment existed that brought out these behaviors and feelings within us? Then we learn more about what we do. What are my coping mechanisms? How do I act these out and with whom? Then we have to face the why. Because again, our motives are extremely difficult to own, but it's where the freedom happens. Very often, if the behavior is dysfunctional, our motives are rooted around power over others or the fear of abandonment, and we don't want to own either one. We face how we have sought power over others. We face how we have manipulated, not how we were manipulated, how we have used people-pleasing, kindness, service to manipulate we face down our lies. I have misrepresented myself to you because I was afraid to be seen. And I thought in that false self, I would have the relationship I wanted. We face how we have allowed ourselves to be misunderstood and misperceived if it served our ego. These are hard things to own. I get it. And I can tell you, honestly, I've done it. You are hearing from someone. I am not any kind of a guru. I am just as broken as anyone else. But I've done some work. You are hearing from someone who has worked those very steps four times. It is so hard. It gets easier. <laughs> and it gets much easier to be transparent and honest and own all of this crap when you're in safe relationship. And safe relationships are it's the community we need. But we can't do this without self-compassion. And this process, believe it or not, is what a therapist is actually for. They are a non-judging audience. They are a witness to not your failures, your courage. And this is the phenomenon. When you face yourself, your actions, separate from what anybody else did to you, your actions. Now, what is the domino effect? Well, once we get to this level of human honesty, and this is astounding, that's the only word that comes to mind, our minds become clearer. It is astounding to watch, and it was astounding to experience, and it still is. It's actually part of the motivation of doing the work. It's like, I don't ever want to go back into the fog I was in. I want to stay in clarity. But in order to stay in a clear-minded place, I've got to be clear-minded about me. That's where it starts. But this is the domino effect. 
I have seen clients confront themselves and reveal themselves to me in radical honesty and truth. And then out of nowhere in the same session, spout off the most amazing wisdom around raising children I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot. I've heard clients finally express the hurt underneath their condescending behaviors, right? They're looking past the coping mechanisms to the emotion, to the motive. And out of nowhere, they have the strength to set the boundaries they need to set in difficult relationships in their lives. The domino effect is that honesty, radical self-honesty produces clarity because you cannot have clarity about the world if you don't have clarity about yourself, as much as you can, as much as is revealed to your ego, you got to talk about it. And therapy should be a safe place to do that. And I will tell you, if your therapist starts discouraging, oh, you're being too hard. No, 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 no. You're going to have to use your gut here. Find someone who can hold your darkness. If they can hold their own, they can hold yours. And they will not discourage you from it because they know that that is the path of healing. We have to face the shadow. So the domino effect is that this honesty produces clarity and clarity gives us strength. Another way of saying that is the courage of our convictions. This is the outcome of the work. We're stronger than before to live our lives with purpose and conviction and peace. But please do not for one minute think that you can get there without self-honesty first. There is no book that will bring you there because it can't come from outside you. It's self-generative. You have to get to the point in your life when you say, screw it. I don't care how bad I look. This is the truth. And make sure that if you're going to go there, You've got a very compassionate therapist and you've developed some self-compassion because if you can't hold yourself with unconditional compassion, you won't have the internal framework to be honest. You will always hide yourself from yourself if you can't give compassion to the darkest parts of yourself. Compassion is what gives us the ability to hold all that we are, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly folks. And I will tell you, I'm only saying this because I don't want you to think I'm any better. Just because I've done some of this work doesn't mean I don't have miles to go. I do. I'm just in it. And I want to be in it with you. All right. So let's pause there. Heavy day, but a good day, right? Lots of you have written me about toolbox workshops. Okay. In the fall, there are two offerings. Okay. Nashville folks, I am doing a toolbox workshop intensive with four couples, okay? There's gonna be nine of us in the room, four couples and your therapist here, Vanessa. So if you are in the Nashville area, in Tennessee and you wanna make the drive, we're gonna go through the whole book. It's an eight week workshop. Again, four couples, very intensive, starting on September 12th. If you want to be a part of that, send me a message through my website. Okay, you can email me at the podcast at vanessalandino.com, info at vanessalandino.com. Either of those are fine. Or just go to my website, click the contact form, and fill out that information. All right? Again, it's closed at four couples. So the first four, I'm going to be screening to make sure that you're a good fit for this, but I'm going to close it after four couples. And if you're listening to this and you're not in Nashville, which is most of you, I'm doing this online. 
Okay, I'm doing the same exact eight-week program starting September 12th online, but for you online, it's going to be Thursdays from 6 to 7.30 Central, okay? And we're going to do it on Zoom, and it'll have all the same confidentiality as therapy, okay? If you want more information, shoot me an email. Thank you for listening, and remember, your soul work is to discover who you truly are. Boy, does that mean more today and learn how to love that human being. I promise you, you are worthy of it. Even at the darkest place, you are worthy of it. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by the incredible, loving, humble, remarkable, (laughs) I'm biased, he's my husband, Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino and you just listened to the Vanessa Londino podcast.